Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Dean Rader has published widely in the fields of poetry, American Indian studies, and visual culture. His poetry has garnered a number of awards and recognitions, including the T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize. His newest collection of poetry, Self-Portrait as Wikipedia Entry, was recently published by Copper Canyon Press. As a poet, scholar, teacher, and writer-slash-reviewer for a number of periodicals and journals, Dean does not shy away from the socio-political issues of our day. He recently wrote about teaching poetry post-truth and post-Trump for the Huffington Post, and was interviewed by the Washington Post on the convergence of poetry and politics. A native of western Oklahoma, he's now based in San Francisco, where he's professor of English at the University of San Francisco. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's a real pleasure. So I, I like to get started with a little background, and I'm guessing there might be some interesting stories moving from uh, growing up, or or what I know about you being from Western Oklahoma, to then becoming a poet, writer, professor, living out in San Francisco, there there must be an interesting uh, journey there. <laughs> Maybe more interesting to me than for other people, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it does seem like an improbable course. I grew up in a uh, Weatherford, Oklahoma, a small farm town uh, out in Western Oklahoma. When I was a kid, neither of my parents had graduated from college. My mom wound up going back later uh, when I was in high school. Uh, but my family were not readers for the most part, although my grandparents, who lived in the same uh, town as me, um, were really avid readers. In fact, my grandmother had been a school teacher, uh, and they both were reading all the time and um, sort of introduced me, I suspect, without knowing it, to the love uh, to the love of books and the process of reading. And then, you know, I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a writer or a professor. I thought I might be a lawyer or, and I had really had no idea. But gradually, um, I went up changing. I moved, I'd been a, uh, really interested in journalism. Even in high school, I had written for our uh, local high school, our, our local high school newspaper, but also for our local city newspaper. Um, and then had written for the university newspaper. I thought I might be a journalism major and then sort of gradually gravitated over to becoming an English major and taking some really fabulous uh, creative writing classes, including probably to this day, my favorite class was this poetry workshop with a fairly well-known poet. And, you know, I ended up going to graduate school in New York and lived in Europe for a while. I thought I might be a translator. Uh, I lived in Texas for a while, um, lived in Georgia, uh, spent some time in Mexico and Guatemala. Now I'm in San Francisco. And I have two young sons and my kids' uh, childhood experience could, <laughs> could not be more different than mine. Hmm. Um, so, so in these different stops along the way, were these um, for academic jobs, or were you? What were you doing in these various places? Yeah, mostly academic jobs, or 
like working on academic projects. So I actually went, and I don't advise this to my students now, but I went straight from undergrad. I went to undergrad at Baylor in Texas. Oh, okay. And, and went straight from Baylor to State University of New York in Binghamton to their English department where I was doing graduate literature, creative writing. Um, I took some translation courses. Uh, Binghamton had one of the only graduate programs in translation. And then I moved from the English department to comparative literature. I got my MA there and then spent um, a semester living in Austria thinking I was going to translate this fairly obscure Austrian poet, Georg Trockel, who died at the end of World War I. But I woke up one day, I was living in Salzburg, studying at his Gedenkstätte, or his sort of like the archive, and realized that I really didn't like German very much. <laughs> and I was tired of <laughs> Tired of thinking in German, so I fled to Spain, and I liked, I liked Dean, I liked Spanish Dean better than Austrian Dean, and uh, so I worked on my Spanish. Then I uh, moved to Texas and lived there briefly, and then I spent um, some time in Mexico and Guatemala, and then I decided to go back for the PhD and went back to Binghamton and finished my coursework there and my exams, and then I got this really fascinating fellowship at Georgia Tech. And then uh, I, got a, I got a job at Texas Lutheran University in Seguin. Uh, and I lived there for a few years. And I liked that job. I lived in Austin and I loved, I loved my life. And then I uh, got offered this fantastic job um, at USF. And I've been here for, geez, 16 years now. Wow. And, and I'm currently department chair. It's wow. been a, an unusual ride. Yeah. To say the least, that that's fascinating. So, uh, I'm curious. Uh, along the way, you did all of these different things, so, talking about translating and comparative literature. When when did you first uh, start writing poetry? What what was the interest in in poetry? I was taking an like an intro to creative writing class as an undergraduate at Baylor, and we were mostly writing fiction, but we had a poetry component. And I found that I really liked writing poems. And that was happening about the same time that I was discovering poetry. I remember I was taking uh, like an American survey class. And I was, our assignment was just to kind of poke around in our um, poetry anthology. And I, I still have this book, actually. And I came across a page that had James Wright poems on the left and W.S. Merwin poems on the right. And I was just blown away by the poems and I had no idea that these things I was reading uh, could be poetry and mm. I thought and it really made me feel like nothing else I had ever felt it was some combination between a prayer and a song and a confession and I thought I wonder if I could write something that would make other people feel the way these poems are making me feel. And I remember that was kind of the genesis of thinking about making art or making poetry. And then uh, this poet who taught at Baylor, this guy named William Virgil Davis, who had won the Yale Younger Poets Award. And as an excellent poet, he's not as well known as he could or should be, he was offering an advanced poetry workshop, but you had to submit a portfolio in order to be accepted. And uh, the three people, <laughs> the three people accepted were one other undergraduate, a graduate student, and me. And that was this unbelievable immersion into 
writing and reading and talking about and living poetry. And that, that class changed my life. Then I would also say, no, so I, 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 I apologize. And then I actually went on to grad school not really knowing if I would be a poet or not. I thought I might be a translator, thought I might be an essayist, a critic. I thought I might write about art. Um, I knew I wanted to do writing and be a writer. I went to grad school knowing I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what. I like wearing all these different hats, and I still do as it happens. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't really forced to pick anything because if I just had to write one genre, I, I would go crazy. I was going to ask uh, some other. What are what are you you mentioned this sort of immersive uh, workshop sort of environment? What are what are some things that you glean from that that uh, that maybe you still carry with you today? Is there anything that that was had a real lasting impact? Yeah, there are a couple of things, both as a writer and a professor. So one of the things is that we had to come to class with a poem that was published somewhere in the world and we had to read it to the class and talk about not only why we loved it but why we thought it was a successful poem like what what it did well and i and that taught me that i had to know why i liked something it taught me to to look beyond um an immediate reaction and to figure out kind of the mechanism of poetry like what what makes the engine of poetry turn? And then the, the professor, he would bring in a poem usually as well every week, and he would read it and talk about why he thought it was working well. So those, those experiences made me look closely, really slow down and look closely at poems Plus, there's only three of us in the class. You couldn't hide. Like, you had to come prepared every single week. Yeah. And uh, the, the responsibility of participation was high. And so it, it introduced a level of rigor to, to writing. And I often think that writing gets romanticized, especially poetry, as something that happens when you're sitting outside you know, in a meadow or near a creek and uh, the heavens open up and golden showers of light and flowers rain down upon the poet and she's visited with this ecstatic experience and the poem pretty much writes itself on the page. And my experience is that happens almost never, that really poetry's work and that uh, you have to dedicate yourself to, to an art, to a craft, to... Uh, something that you really believe in. And it's, it's this commitment to uh, the art of making that begets making. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's, it's very true for composers, maybe not so much musicians in the sense that we're I interpretive musicians. Part of what I like to do on this podcast, by the way, is to kind of see where disciplines kind of have connections and and a lot yeah. of the creative stuff is is very similar from you know field to field uh, and and this is one of those things that like developing a rigor in your practice uh, and that that very much is true for me too this, this idea of like well, I don't know if you, you probably experienced this too, but like, you know, something that does come to you in one of these moments, like these eureka aha moments, 
you know, often for me, uh, we were, I was just talking about this this morning, actually, um, with a, with a poet friend of mine here on campus, uh, Nick Lance. I don't know if you know Nick's work, but Nick and I are good friends and we work together a lot. And we were just, we were doing this design project together and, uh, you know, we had collaborated, we came up with this idea and then we left the office that this was last week and we thought, oh man, this looks really great and this is a good idea. And then you sit on it, you know, it just sort of came about very quickly <laughs> and you sit on it for a couple of days and you come back and we're like, what? I'm not sure what I was thinking, but that's not, that's not working for me, you know, <laughs> or you think you have this amazing idea, you know, and you put it down and then the next day you come back and you're like, what was I thinking? This is like, <laughs> this is no good at all. <laughs> but it's, it's part of like, what you're saying, that commitment to the process and the rigor of of creating and having a practice of doing that, you know, and chipping away. And even if it doesn't lead anywhere, I, I feel like that's even really important. Uh, I've met some visual artists, too, and also through the show that, you know, they have a thing that they do every day. It might not lead anywhere, but it's it's just a practice. It's sort of like practicing. It's flexing that creative muscle or something. Oh, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I tell my students this now that you, the good poem or the great poem that you write three months from now or six months from now or a year from now might require you to write 10 or 15 bad or mediocre poems before you get to that poem. It's not a sort of one in, one out kind of exchange. You have to go through a lot of small and even large failures before you have, you know, medium or even large successes. So I think that the, the commitment to a project, the belief in the discipline and the trust that, uh, the work over time will, uh, reveal itself, if not to, to others, then to you is part of what it means to be creative. And you just may not get the recognition that you feel like you deserve or that your work deserves, but you're kind of forced to endure it anyway <laughs> if yeah. you want to make things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've often felt that some of my most successful compositions were the ones that were the hardest to make, you know? Um, oh, yeah. The ones that just at every turn, you know, didn't work for me, <laughs> and I'd have to come up with something else, and that didn't work. And, you know, um, I found that those have been my some of my most successful things. And then, sure enough, uh if you chip away at it long enough, uh, so, I mean, at least you hope that something will happen and everything just sort of clicks and falls into place. At least that's how it happens for me. You know, I'll have some idea and I'm working on it. Ah, this doesn't work and this angle isn't working and blah. And then all of a sudden, boom, it clicks and snap, something snaps and it pops into, pops into shape. But if I hadn't just kept on at it, you know, it, it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been as good. So there is something to that, I think. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And sometimes it can be the tiniest thing that does it, the smallest thing that pivots um, and makes the work suddenly go to some different place or, you know, lift itself to some higher level. Yeah. Well, speaking of pivots, let's make one here and talk about some of your work. Let's dive in and, and talk about some specifics. So uh, I very much enjoyed reading your latest book. Uh, I got a couple of your books, uh, but uh, maybe we could talk about this latest one uh, sure. since I've got it right here in front of me. And uh, I don't know, would you, I don't know if you have it there with you, if you might want to read something or uh, 
maybe just talk about this collection either way I I would be happy to do both. Uh, is there a poem in particular that you uh, would like me to read? Well, it just so happens <laughs> I have I have selected a few of my favorite ones. Um, let's see. Let's do this one. It's a kind of a fun one to start with. A poem in which readers select their favorite title. Oh yeah, I like that poem. So I have this funny story um, about reading that poem. That poem appeared in the my little chat book that uh, came out before this book did, and I was reading uh, that poem in Oklahoma, actually, and an elderly couple uh, was at the reading, and at the time, so this poem is called, as you said, poem in which readers select their favorite title, and for listeners, the poem begins with a kind of multiple choice of five choices. You get to pick um, the, the title that you would like this poem to have. And the, at the time, the poem had a slightly different a list of titles. And so I said, okay, so now you guys all get to pick what title you want to apply to this poem. And when I got done reading them, a the man leaned over to his wife and he said, those are all pretty bad. <laughs> I thought, oh, man, Oklahoma. <laughs> I was like, noted. I got you. All right. So in all of my books, there is this genuine, earnest gesture toward the reader. Like, I really like the idea of poetry being um, interactive. And I want the reader to feel like he or she is invited to participate in the creation of the poem. And this is one of the ways that I literally do that is by giving readers a choice to give this poem the title that they would like. So the options are A study on the distance but inevitability of war, B, still life with manifest destiny, C, seshu toyo, an homage. And uh, toyo is this great Japanese scroll painter um, that has this huge uh, uh, painting that in some ways I was thinking about when I wrote this poem. D, Depressed by the programming options on Fox, I stumble outside into a cloudless night, or E, American landscape. And so here's the poem. Somewhere the stars have clicked on their little lamps and gone hunting. Only in darkness can you see the light. Only by drowning do you learn to swim. Nothing is harder to believe in than belief. And yet, here we are. At it again, never really knowing if we are the arrow or the bow. The moon unwinds its scarf and dives into the pond. Nothing on the water but the strange shadows of this life. I could walk over to the edge to look for whatever I have lost. But instead, I'll lean my grief against two or three pines and walk away. Beautiful poem, really oh, is. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so I, I noticed this about your poetry as I read through, so it was interesting to hear you say that that's something that you often think about is sort of interaction for the readers to interact with your poetry, that you often um, reference the, the reader in your work. Yes. And, and I also t- noticed that you tend to write poems about poems or poems about poetry a lot, and 
or, or how a reader might encounter this particular poem that they're reading and, and that kind of thing. And so there's this kind of meta quality to it as you as you read through the book. Uh, so so clearly you must spend a lot of time thinking or have spent a lot of time thinking about poetry in a, in a broad sense or what it means to write and read poetry. Uh, you mentioned the workshop uh, process as being an important part of uh, sort of getting your uh, aesthetic together. Walk us through this poem a little bit. What what um, what's going on here in in your in your mind? Well, I'll even back up a little bit further and get to your questions that began okay. our conversation, and that because it's all connected. And that is the fact that every time I write a poem, I can't help but think about what my grandparents or my sister or people I went to school with in Oklahoma would think about the poem. I mean, you cannot survive in rural Oklahoma and be very pretentious. <laughs> so so I, 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 I am always thinking about, you know, what would my friend Steve have, think about this poem? If I, if I write this poem, would he think I'm just a, a pretentious jackass? So I'm always curious about how poems are experienced or encountered not among kind of the intellectual or poetry elite. On the other hand, I love poems that make me work. And so I'm always torn between writing poems that I feel are aesthetically and intellectually engaging and rigorous and ambitious. Like I, I, really, I really want poems to be ambitious. And at the same time, I don't want to exclude human beings. I believe in democracy. I believe in equal access. And I think finding that line is often really difficult. And one way I try to have it both ways, and I don't always succeed, I think it's impossible to always succeed, is to let the reader know that the poem loves them, that the poem wants them to be part of it. I don't like contemporary poetry that mocks the reader or that tries hard to make the reader feel stupid. Um, I just want the reader to feel lifted, engaged, even angered. I just want them to feel like the poem wants to be part of their lives. And so in this case, I had, the, I had written this poem pretty, pretty much the way it is, and I couldn't think of a title for it. And I kept thinking about different titles. I said, you know, this poem could be a kind of confessional poem. It could be taken as a political poem. It could be taken as a poem about God. Um, it could be taken as a poem about art, about the act of creation. It's a poem about self-doubt. It's a poem about nature, actually, in many ways. And maybe even about um, the ways in which we are connected to or are not connected to nature. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to let readers decide what poem, what title they would want to attach to this poem. And so then I just went through a series of titles that I thought would be, you know, usable, workable, and in some cases, funny, funny titles. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because of course, as you intended, you know, um, people are bringing their own ideas and their own backgrounds and their own opinions and all of that to this piece. And then when you read, uh, for instance, when you read this poem with the title of 
depressed by the programming options on Fox, I stumble outside into a cloudless night. The, the, <laughs> it takes on a different character uh, rather it than does. reading it as, uh, you know, study on the distance but inevitability of war. That takes on a very different character. And so it's fascinating to sort of imagine, you know, try to read the poem with that title in mind and how it how it resonates and then and then with the other one you know what i mean so it's this really i do i think different people different demographics are going to be attracted to different titles like my painter friends are going to say oh seshu toyo that's kind of interesting and um you know my more political friends would be like oh yeah this is really about war or programming or yeah you know I mean, I'm also really interested. So as as the titles, I'm not sure if listeners will remember many of the titles, but they include things like um, self-portrait with or still life as or the last one is American landscape. Um, many of the poems in the book incorporate the language of painting or photographs in their titles or they try to do in poetry, you know, what a painting might try to do. So there are like still lives, landscapes, portraits things like that. So the book tries to make an argument for a correspondence between the gestures of uh, art and the gestures of poetry. Yeah. There's a compa- <laughs> there's a companion poem to that one in the book where readers get to choose their favorite last line. Right, right. So there's the same, I think five or six line poem uh, repeated and yeah. then each of those has a different last line. Yeah. And uh, readers can pick whichever one they like the best. Yeah, um, you know, I definitely want to get into a little bit about how your work is relevant to our socio-political times and our, you know, just what's happening in the world and, you know, reflecting on this book, but also the the book that you edited, The 99 Poems for the 99%, and it sort of goes into what we were talking about. You're thinking about poetry in a broader sense and what it means to to us to have poetry in our lives or to read or to write poetry. Um, and, you know, that that would be a whole other interesting discussion to talk about that book, too. Or maybe we could do part two of the podcast. You know what? Talk about, Let's and do... just to talk about po- poetry and politics because I'm actually... So the other thing I, that you may or may not know is I'm one of three editors of this really, really interesting uh, anthology of poetry and citizen responses about gun violence. And that's going to be published by Beacon Press, and it's going to be released on the fifth anniversary, this December, the fifth anniversary of the Sandy Hook shootings. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And it's this fascinating book we have all of these amazing poets uh, juan felipe herrera robert haas billy collins rita dove many of the living poet laureates have contributed poems in some cases original poems that they wrote for the anthology and then uh, one of the editors of the anthology had someone who is either involved in the anti-gun movement or has been a survivor of uh, a gun a gun violence shooting to respond to each of the poems. So it's this this poem by a famous poet and then a response to that poem by someone, you know, who's been affected by gun violence. Oh, wow. It's it's kind of a riveting book and we're just in the process of finishing up that right now. And that's absolutely on my mind. I've been thinking about it a lot, especially since uh, the president's address to the NRA a couple of days ago. Right. But anyway, wow. so that's that's also on the horizon. But we could also we could absolutely spend an entire hour talking about 
the ways in which art can and should or does not or should not address socio and political issues. Well, let's let's do that. For now, since we have just limited amount of time, why don't we just stay on this book and talk poetry a little bit and uh, maybe read a couple more poems and we'll we'll call it a day and then we'll resume with a part 2 down the road where we where we talk about poetry and art and politics, but poetry yeah. and politics. Okay, great. Well, I would also like just to, to to see more. I've seen some of your work, but I'd like to see more of your art. Maybe we could have a conversation about, you know, each other's work. And I'd like to ask you some questions also about, you know, your own practice and, you know, how you, you know, make the call between abstraction representation and overt political rhetoric and that's, no. that's the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing, <laughs> yeah, right? The hardest thing. Yep, yep. Where to draw the line. Uh, but yeah, that, that would be great. I would love that. I wanted to, I, I would love for you to read this one other poem, at least one other poem, maybe, maybe two. Sure. But uh, the one that, that turned me on to your work to start with was, uh, so this was after the election, and like a lot of, of progressives uh, in those days was feeling just distraught, like a gut punch, you know. And I think, you know, as an artist wanting to respond in some way, and of course I, I did end up making a, a performance piece about truth. And so anyway, we that maybe is the thing that we can talk about next time. But my friend Nick was also in the same thing. You know, all of his poet friends were responding, writing pieces, you know, making things and getting together to do readings and all of this stuff. And uh, he very kindly lent me one of these collections. I think it's, I can't remember now what college it's from. Uh, oh, it's called yes. Jubilat. Yeah, Jubilat. It's a great literary magazine out of uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. That's it. So he gave me this book, and uh, it, it was literally within you know a week or two, two weeks of the election. Whenever that thing came out, it came out really quickly, and very fast. Uh, yeah, very fast. And so he gave me this thing, and I was just dumbfounded at the the poetry in this book is just phenomenal. I mean, a lot of it is really good, uh, but a lot of it is just really sincere, you know. And you had this poem in there, "America, I do not call your name without hope," and I remember reading it in those days and it just a, a very strong emotional response uh and that response has you know uh, calmed down a bit now but i just remember thinking oh man this i need to know this poet and so this was my connection to you and i would love it if you would uh, read this poem yeah i would be happy to um thank you for saying all those things and i i i think we all have had not all of us, but many of us had similar, similar reactions after the election. So here's the interesting story about this poem. Well, back up. So the poem is called America, I Do Not Call Your Name Without Hope. Um, and then there's the epigraph or after Neruda. So Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, has a poem called America, I Do Not Call Your Name Without Hope. That's how it's translated into English. And of mm -hmm. course, he's talking about Spanish America, South America, and what's happening with uh, the rise of fascism, corporatization, dictatorships, violence, suppression of basic human rights in, in South America. And I was thinking a lot about uh, this other poem by Neruda called The Poet's Obligation, which he talks about uh, sort of 
his obligation as a poet. And I, I wrote this poem actually after the, the murders of uh, Eric Garner and Michael Brown. So the poem is two or three years old. And I was thinking at the time, my son, my youngest son was about two, and I was trying to decide if I was hopeful or not about America. And so I was thinking about the Neruda poem, and I was thinking about a poem that was both personal and political. Like I'm really thinking about my kids, and I'm thinking about being a parent, and what, what do you what do you do, you know, with with the rise in gun violence and racism and the police and America. And so I wrote this poem. And the San Francisco Chronicle actually ran this poem in the newspaper two days after the presidential election. And it wound up getting uh, reprinted in three different poetry anthologies. One is about speaking truth to power. One is sort of a anti-Trump anthology. And the other was this Jubilat anthology. And it's become this poem that people have associated with a resistance to the presidential election, which it certainly can be read through that lens. But I didn't um, intend for it to be. But it's a testament to how you as a writer do not control your poems, mm -hmm. that the poems take on a life of their own and people do with them what they want to do with them and they put them to work the ways they <laughs> want to put them to work. Yeah. So here's the poem. America, I do not call your name without hope after Neruda. America, I do not call your name without hope not even when you lay your knife against my throat or lace my hands behind my back, the cuffs connecting us like two outlaws trying to escape history's white horse, its heavy whip, a pistol shot in the ear. Lost land, this is a song for the scars on your back, for your blistered feet and beautiful watch. It is for your windmills, your leavened machines, for your fists. It is for your wagon of blood, for your dogs and their teeth of fire, for your sons and the smoke in their hearts. This is for your verbs, your long lurk, your whir. This is for you and your fear, your tar, for the white heat in your skin and for your blue bones that one day may sing. This is for your singing. This is for the past, but not for what's past. This is for daybreak and backbreak, for dreams and for darkness. This song is not for your fight, but it is a song for fighting. It is a song of flame, but not for burning. It is a song out of breath, but a plea for breathing. It is the song I will sing when you knock on my door, my son's name in your mouth. Powerful stuff, Dean. Powerful. Powerful words. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, I I had a similar feeling when I read this, uh, when the election happened, and I, uh, my wife and I talked a lot about this, like, what do we do now? Because we have a two-year-old, you know, and yeah. we're in a similar position. What, what's this, what's it going to look like for him? You know, um, you know, what, how do we, how do we think about our country right now and where we're going and or what are we doing, you know, and how can we make a stand, make a difference for what we believe is 
where we thought we were going and where we should be going. You know, it's, there are all these questions, and I think you you articulated it well when you said uh, the question about, do I still have hope? You know, is there still hope? And I think a lot of people, maybe older generation of people said no, <laughs> they, they've lost their hope. I've talked to plenty of people who are, you know, in this sort of this hopeless sense. Um, even people, some people my age think that ah, this is hopeless, you know. But but then your poem comes along, and I always feel hopeful. Uh, maybe I'm just optimistic. <laughs> There's something about the 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 power and the beauty in your language here that uh, can inspire some some hope. I think. I, I I hope so. I mean, I am an optimistic person by nature. I mean, like I'm probably 51 percent optimistic. <laughs> you know, so it's it's a guarded guarded optimism. But I, I read this poem. Not long ago, that's about a, about a week ago at this event here in the Bay Area and um, at the Q&A, uh, one of the guys in the audience said, you know, I'm looking at this poem. I remember reading it in the Chronicle and, you know, I think I really thought when the poem began that you would, that you would sort of be making an argument one way or the other. But when I read this poem, I hear, I hear conflict, confusion. Are, are you conflicted? And I said, yeah, I mean, who isn't, who isn't conflicted? Yeah, yeah. And he said, but you're, are you comfortable with uh, the poem sort of not being conflicted, you know, putting off this vibe of, of conflict rather than letting readers know exactly how you feel? And I said, well, actually how I feel is conflicted. <laughs> so so yeah. people might misinterpret. I think he was worried for me that people might misinterpret uh, the poem one way or the other. And I, I'm not worried about that because... I think my um, feelings about everything are not dissimilar to how other people are feeling. Yeah, part of the part of the gut punch of this election, though, was the surprise of it all, right? I mean, every sure. every poll was telling us that it was going the other way, you know. And so I think yeah. part of the feeling was shock, one of shock, and what does this mean? And making sense of it all. So yeah. I, I'm I, I don't have words <laughs> at the moment, but um, I know we're we're running out of time though, and uh, I don't want to keep you. Yeah, so we should let's cut here, and we will regroup soon and uh, do a part two. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream: Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.